I like to follow the 10% rule. You want to be working with someone who's maybe 10% better than you, but no more. You end up taking each other. The two fighters take each other to a place emotionally, physically, spiritually. It's not like sex, but it's a very euphoric experience. You and I could take some, each other in that, to that place in the ring where you're confronting your fear. You're performing at a level you were not sure you could. I'm performing at a level. And as soon as it's over, it's why fighters hug each other. It's why fighters love each other so yeah. much. You and I have just taken each other somewhere that a drug can't take us, that a romantic partner can't take us, that gambling can't take us. You know, it's a very pure high. What's up, everyone? I'm Paul Rabel, professional athlete and co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, and this is an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. Last week, we launched season three, hosting one of the greatest athletes in the world of all time, Jim Brown. And this week, I was fortunate to host one of the greatest filmmakers in the world, Peter Berg. And on the show, I typically reference learning either a new skill, pick up an idea, hear a backstory unexpectedly. This week's episode, there was everything. We talked about overcoming fear, tactics and meditation, achieving 10% improvement in the flow state, best practices in managing a company, like hiring tactics, the neuroscience benefits of helping others, the beauty of storytelling, which Peter does so well, new tech, and more. So yeah, PB is one of the greatest and most genuine people I know. This is a spectacular interview. Hope you're enjoying the start of the season of Suiting Up Podcast, and especially enjoy this show. Thanks for uh, allowing me to come back to Churchill Boxing. Good to have you. Yeah, last time I was here was 18 months ago, and uh, you were doing one of your speaker series events with Dana White and Freddie Roach. It's easier to, to host than, than be hosted. You think so? I think. <laughs> I think. You do, I guess you do it for a living, essentially. Well, I can just deflect and ask questions and then be quiet. So <laughs> now I have to talk. So why uh, why boxing though? Like, you know, what, what's so I, I was always a, a big boxing fan. My dad was was a, a huge Muhammad Ali fan, and he made sure that I appreciated just what a remarkable human being Ali was. Um, and I was fortunate to grow up in the era of great heavyweights. So Ali, Frazier, Holmes, Ken Norton, Foreman, that was kind of a great moment in boxing and something we haven't seen in a while. So I, I inherently love boxing. Um, I was always a pretty aggressive kid. And when I was a kid, my parents sent me to this camp in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Uh, and the owner of the camp was a psychopath. And he used to get some of the counselors at night drunk, and they would come, and it was kind of Lord of the Flies yeah. shit. They would pick two of us, and they'd take us out into the woods, and they'd take rope around the trees and make a ring, and they'd just put us in the ring, and they'd bet on us. So, like, you and me would just have to fight it out. No. Um, no lessons at that point, or were you like... No, we didn't know what we were doing. They'd just give us gloves and tell Holy us to shit. fight. Yeah. And I kind of liked it. Um, and on a weird primal level, I liked the the release and the challenge and kind of overcoming the fear. I, I can remember at a young age being terrified to spar. And then afterwards, even if I lost, realizing, well, I'm still alive. You know, I got, I got punched in the face. I got bloody, um, but I'm okay. And um, I actually remember the respect that I would get from the counselors after we had gone through it. Um, it was as though 
we had done something that they actually were probably too scared to do. We actually got in there wow. and did it. And um, I've always had an incredible respect for fighters. Um, and I've gone to tons of fights and, you know, sitting in the audience of, of, a, of, a, of a prize fight, people are you know having fun and they're drinking and they're partying and they're talking a lot of shit like they know. And then you see the two fighters that actually get in that ring and get left alone. And um, I always felt like those are the only two guys that really know the truth. And, and um, I had so much respect for, for that culture and that kind of warrior spirit um, that I wanted to to pursue it and to keep to keep to create an environment where I could um, show people boxing and teach people who had perhaps never boxed, but also help look after fighters. And so now we're managing fighters here and um, trying to do everything we can to be a part of the growth of the sport. How old were you when you when you were doing that uh, at that camp? At the camp, maybe thirteen. Thirteen. Because yeah, I just keep thinking when when like young males are, are growing up and I was like this, uh, most of the way that we interact with our peers through sports or in the classroom or is, uh, is a lot of it is just like bucking up and trying to be tough. Like who's the toughest? Do you think like getting thrown into that situation gave you the confidence to know that you could carry yourself? Or were you always, it's like fighting, there's always going to be some like fear. I mean, I think that fear is something that I live with every day. You know, every day I wake up and there's something I don't want to do. And I generally try to kind of identify what, what it is that I'm shying away from, whether it's a business deal, calling someone to try and close a deal, and I don't want to do it, having an unpleasant conversation with a friend, breaking up with a girlfriend, um, you know, dealing with some bullshit in my family, things that I generally try to avoid, yeah. you know, and I think those are things that on some level scare me. And I try to to identify those things and, and rather than uh, shirk them or avoid them, but I actually go at them, find the things that I'm scared of. And instead of ignoring it and procrastinate, procrastinating about it, attack it. And I find that when I do that, generally things work out really well. I believe in confrontation. And I think one of my loves of boxing is, I mean, I'll be at this gym. We have sparring here every day. And there's always somebody, you know, and the great thing, boxing is such a great equalizer because it doesn't really matter who you are. You know, we have pro fighters. We have, uh, you know, hip-hop stars and movie stars. We have cops and we have homeless people that come to this gym. Every, anybody can get in the ring with anybody and spar. And I'll always find someone that I don't really, people always ask me if I want to go. And... I'm they fair, do. They yeah, ask you. <laughs> everybody wants to fight me. They, well, they all want to beat me up. I sparred uh, Cam Newton in here last oh, yeah. year, and he about knocked me unconscious. I'll spar almost anyone. Um, he's huge. He's six seven. Yeah, he's that was a mistake. <laughs> uh, that was a big mistake. And then Saquon Barkley came down here and tried to spar me. Um, Last summer, probably I, the greatest athlete right now. In pro I wouldn't, sports. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with Saquon Barkley. He's too strong. He's like Mike Tyson, but bigger. Yeah, and he knows how to box. Cam didn't know how to box, so I thought maybe I could survive a little bit, but he's just too, too much. But, <laughs> but even look, Cam Newton. I, I never should have like messed with Cam Newton. But I will, I will find someone that I don't want to engage with. And when, and when I say sparring, I'm talking about sparring. I'm not talking about fighting. We're not here to, like at, my, at this point in my life, I'm not going to let someone knock me unconscious. I'm going to, you know, we'll put limitations on how hard you can throw rights and how many left hooks you can hit somebody with before you have to back off. 
but the idea of finding using this gym as a place to confront fear mm. um, and that ring is a place where you know you and I could get in the ring and have a controlled sparring session and you would confront a lot of emotion and you would confront fear and you would confront your relationship with violence and traumas would come up and I've seen people burst into tears after sparring sessions after whether they've done well or they've done poorly because it just brings up so much emotion yeah. and that's something that I got back when I was at camp at 13 it was very emotional and um, it was enabling me to do something that generally I would avoid which is getting into a physical altercation with someone even if it's controlled it still brings up a lot of emotion um, and I almost always feel a lot better and clearer after I spar. With, with something that, for the most part, is is probably binary, and that you know, Cam wins that that sparring match. Uh, Cam Cam almost killed me. Let me Cam. be very clear. <laughs> like my, and everyone in the gym who secretly wanted like yeah. to see like because they love when I get hit, and including my son who was there at a certain point because I thought we'd kind of go light. And the second I hit Cam in the jaw, lightly, but I hit him in the jaw, he just switched into a mode that, you know, and Cam is a very, very strong gentleman. He went crazy and went to 100 very, very quickly. Jesus. And I remember hearing my son screaming like, Cam, stop, stop, stop. Jesus. And, that, and Cam backed off, but it was like, it was just too much. And so that, I guess that's where I'm, I'm going on, on, the, on the front of like post-fight. Uh, how much have you learned... Uh, about I mean, it's it's a, it would be a humbling experience I know for having lost uh, probably more games than I've won but everyone talks about games won but there's in a team sport you go back to your locker room and you console with your teammates and coaches in an individual sport like did have you found that there's like all this resentment from a loss or you like it, it, how do you digest those feelings and and uh, is it common to like get back with the person who just kicked your ass and, and yeah. say like, Hey, let's go grab a beer or like, Oh, well, I mean, for, cause I got to imagine that the post yeah. fight emotions yeah. are also where there could be some treatment. Well, I mean, we're not, we're talking about sparring, you know, which is yeah. different than, than fighting. And, um, you know, I find generally that when, when two people spar men or women, um, if you and I spar, and, and I, I like to, to follow the 10% rule, which is you, you, want to, you want to be working with someone who's maybe 10% better than you, but no more. Because at 10%, you can engage, and you keep, that person can, can, can pull you up to their level. And, and if, you're, if you're sparring with someone who's 30% weaker than you or less skilled, it's not going to be, there's not going to be any real challenge for you. You're not going to get into a flow state. You're going to have to be sort of holding yourself back. But if you're within 10% of each other, which is kind of how I like to control it here, um, you end up taking each other. The two fighters take each other to a place uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually that is like, it's not like sex, but it's a very euphoric experience. You and I could take some, each other in that, to that place in the ring where you're confronting your fear, you're performing at a level you were not sure you could, I'm performing at a level, we're giving it and taking kind of equally with respect. And as soon as it's over, that's why fighters hug each other, that's why fighters love each other so yeah. much. You and I have just taken each other somewhere that a drug can't take us, that a, 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 a romantic partner can't take us, um, that gambling can't take us, you know, it's a very 
pure high. Wow. And I'm sure you've experienced it playing lacrosse where you're in a zone with like a teammate and you're, yes. you know, flowing with each other and no look passes and that kind of beauty of rhythm that, that comes from two people working together athletically. When you're trying to hit each other in the face, it's a little more intense, I think. Yeah, you. Uh, it's, it brings up a, a thought that I see, especially with social media now and athletes that are active, uh, after a game, everyone hugs each other in win or defeat, and it seems like within 24 hours of that game, you know, these like hyper masculine males that play sports are in their most like vulnerable state, and they're all going like, "I love this team I'm on, and mm -hmm. love these guys or love these gals." And I do anything for them. They tweet about it, and then you know that that time is ephemeral and they move forward but yeah, yeah that like well they're, putting they're, everything on the line really yeah. connects you well, at the deepest and level. i think if you like like just did some um neuroscience on it you've got dopamine like yep. surging and it's it's real it's a chemical experience you know when you when you in, we're talking about boxings when you when you're engaged in a, in a really good sparring session or you're watching a really good pro fight that, that's even and um very skillful and there's give and take in it you, you're looking at fighters who are experiencing you know they're they're deeply in the zone they're deep in a deep flow state they're un, they're completely oblivious to the to the environment that they're in and it's just this it's we say that boxing is an incredible um, moving meditation. You know, I, I like to meditate, um, but I'm pretty hyper. So for me to sit for 15 minutes is tough. But in, in a sparring situation, uh, it's a, it's, you're not thinking about anything else other than the person in front of you and the experience in front of you. And you're so alert and so focused. And if you're doing it right, you're breathing and you're moving and you're sweating and you're engaged in, a, in an experience that really elevates your brain chemistry and and the love between the love in this gym after sparring sessions generally sometimes it gets really nasty i've seen that too yeah and especially when like parents are involved and uh, yeah. we've, had the, <laughs> we've had some issues parents but in sports generally between the fighters it's and in, there's an incredible uh, loving emotional relationship that exists even in what appears to be a very violent encounter. Yeah, I want to I want to get to meditation and hear a little bit more about your practice. But do you th going back to those priorities and prioritizing specifically the hard conversations and the shit that we want to or have previously procrastinated on? Do you find that in a like almost a sadistic way, having a hard conversation also gives, if done appropriately, it also gives you that dopamine release? I mean, I think it gives you, yeah, a variety of releases. Confronting, anytime you confront fear and realize you're still alive, that's a, that's a win, I think. And if, you know, you look, if I'm, if I'm, in business, if I'm trying to, to get a movie greenlit and I need someone to give me a whole ton of money and I'm like, I've done, it's, it's go time, I got to sit down in front of them and ask for the actual money. Yeah. You know, the, the, I was talking like, business is it's all... the hardest fucking well, thing. Well, I mean, do. it's the only thing that matters, right? So yeah. I tell everybody that works with me, like everybody in business, 99% of people in business do everything they can to avoid actually saying, I need money. Can I have it? Yes or no? Yep. Right? And the person that can actually put that conversation on the table, let's go, let's straight up. Here's, here's why I think you should give me the money, here's what the risks are, here's what the rewards are, here's why I'm, I'm worthy, I'm a worthy custodian of your money, yes or no. That's, 
that's a hard conversation to have. People don't like to do that because they're terrified. Yeah. That's, a, that's not unlike getting in the ring and being like, I'm going to try and knock you out, yes or no. And I think that anytime you confront an issue and you, you, you bring an issue to, the, to, to a head, if it's wanting a raise, if it's confronting your son on some real behavior, you know, parents are scared to talk to their kids at a certain point and telling your kid, you know, no. If you do this, then this, and then following through with it, that's scary for a lot of parents. Yeah. But when you do it consistently, and you at least have a practice that encourages confrontation of fear-based behavior, I'm going to engage in what is uncomfortable. I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to welcome that. I'm going to feed off of that. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, you get dopamine and... I don't know anyone that's really successful in life that doesn't have a healthy relationship with their ability to confront the shit that scares them. Hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, I remember sitting here and listening to you host and thinking immediately how kind of introspective, cerebral, but curious you were. And it was from my from my perspective, it was you know I was sitting in front of someone and two other people that I've idolized in the sports and entertainment industry and sometimes we we are f are fearful of, of reaching out because we've put them on a pedestal and there's other times where we stereotype just you know the most successful people in industries yeah. as almost being untouchable and your uh your willingness to like continue to like talk or text was just kind of like damn this this is pretty uh this is it feels unique where is your where does your experience in like the the world of psychology come from are you are you like an avid reader um, or is it just through life experiences? Is it therapy? You mentioned meditation, but mm -hmm. this is this is not stuff that I've found, at least personally, comes from experience. Yeah. There's some educational component. I mean, I think, um, you know, for me, um, if, if you trace, like, the, the origins of, like, why my brain is on fire every morning when I wake up, which it is. I, I'm sure yours is, too. I, like, I, I call us go-to-bed angry, wake-up furious people. Like, just go to bed angry and wake up really fucking furious. That's kind of been yeah. how I you don't, have been. You don't hit the snooze on the alarm when that's... No, 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 no. There's no, there's no, there's no alarm. Like, right. you just wake up, and it's early. And um, I, I know I've been driven... Um, and, you know, for me, the origins go back to, you know, my mom and my dad and things that happened when I was a kid that were um, incendiary at times. I didn't have the most stable childhood. And, my you know, I, I loved my parents very much, but they were very, you know, good people, but had, had were, were not without flaws. And that lit something inside of me, which is, you know, true to, to most people I know who are very entrepreneurial and out there kind of in an untethered um, environment without a safety net, you know, which certainly boxing and filmmaking, they're both like, there's no safety net in either one of those businesses. There's no barrier of entry and there's no, there's no plan B, you know, there is no, there's no balance. You're all in. Um, and I recognized, oh God, I'm 54. I recognized maybe 25 years ago that I was running hot, that my brain was was maybe a little bit more hardwired or hotwired than most of the people around me. Um, and I started to have to kind of learn through a process of trial and error about, you know, what what feels good. You know, if 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 I 
do drugs, and I've done every drug in the world, that didn't really feel good. Like, it might have felt good for a minute. It made me feel worse the next day. But really bad. If I lost my temper, might have felt good for a minute. If I got in a fight, if I destroyed a relationship, you know, in the minute it would feel good, in the moment, but the, the, the emotional or physical hangover just never felt good. And that kind of pushed me into a path of trial and error and like trying different paths of, of behaviors that I could use in harmony with, you know, my love of filmmaking and of writing and of, you know, having this desire to be, um, creative and work in this business. And I, I found certain types of behaviors felt good and paid off, uh, in good dividends. And, and for me, you know, writing, getting up early and writing was something that, um, very early I realized felt really, really good, felt very, um, authentic to my soul. Um, like writing freely. Well, I started writing just journals and then I started writing short stories and then I started sharing them with my best friend, Ari Emanuel, who's now big shot in Hollywood. And he was the only one reading them, Hmm. uh, and my sister, and they started quietly kind of really getting into what I was writing in that led to Ari encouraging me to kind of write it in screenplay form. And I realized that by getting up early, like I'm talking about at 4 o'clock a.m. early, and writing till about 7, I was, I was having this, this experience that I'd never had before. This, like, it felt magical and pure and euphoric and, and all that kind of stuff that we look for. And then suddenly I started writing these little scripts and people started buying them. So I started getting a financial um, uh, reward and my career started to kind of rise and it was all because of something that was very self-generated. Me alone, initially in a garage in West LA because my, my wife at the time, like I didn't have any room in the house. I had a small little house, so she, I got half the garage. So I'd be there like a four in the morning like an animal writing on an old computer. And the next thing I know, I, I had a career. Hmm. And um, the same is true with with boxing. You know, I realized like, um, at a certain point, I wanted a little bit more than just the entertainment industry. And people were asking me if I wanted to invest in a bar or a restaurant or a t-shirt company. Or what. And I was like, ah. And I think for some reason, opening up a boxing gym might feel good. And I figured if I open up a boxing gym, Every day, I'm going to have to go there and do something healthy. Something, I'm going to have to move my body. And I knew that writing and exercising were two things that made me feel good. Um, and then somewhere along the way, I've, I found yoga. Hmm. And um, yoga led me to meditation uh, and into exploring a little bit of Buddhism, which was the only religion that really made any kind of sense to me for a variety of reasons. And that became kind of a whole nother path yeah but i would say yoga boxing and writing were kind of three things that all came to me and made big big differences in you my sh- life you should do a, a film on uh the the different religions or just like focus on buddhism because uh, it's something i've challenged myself i grew up in a, in a catholic family and i've challenged myself to just kind of understand more mm-hmm. um 
and uh, you know, we'll try to read. And and I would like to have. Uh, I had this vision a few years ago that I was going to do a deep dive into uh, religion discovery for myself, and mm-hmm. then we decided to start a new pro lacrosse league. So I didn't have time to like <laughs> deep dive religion really, pro lacrosse. <laughs> really deep. Have time. Uh, you're, but, you're a young man. You yeah. Time. But in, anyway, uh, what what type of meditation do you like? TM or guided or i mean i like um really simple basic breath flow Hmm. which is literally um i'll try and do a hundred breath meditation uh every morning which is just literally i'm you're breathing in um and it's ujjayi breathing so it's in through the nose out through the nose but if i can sit for a hundred breaths and just literally as i'm inhaling the only thing i think about is i'm inhale in as i'm exhaling out one inhale exhale too and I've, if if i if my mind starts to wander i start to attach to a thought that's not either in or out um, note it let it go and return right back and sometimes it's a disaster it's an utter shit show and i can barely get to 20 before right. i but i generally will force myself to do it you know i have a little morning routine and that's part of it um i'm a fan of win hoff um do you, are you, are, do you know him yeah, the Iceman, and yeah. some of his his breathing's a little aggressive, and he's yeah. he's a little out there. I'm but a little bit nervous about that because it can put you into like a, a really like you need to do it with supervision. He can kill you, like yeah, he, yeah. he can kill you for yeah. sure. <laughs> I'm not really sure that like half of what he does is healthy, but but there there's some there's some apps. There's a box breathing app that I use that um, when I when I did Lone Survivor, a bunch of Navy SEAL buddies of mine were all doing. Which um, you can just download What's it. What's that called? But it's called box breathing. It's called box breathing. Where you you adjust your breathing, and I'll do that a lot of times in the morning. If I don't, I'll either do the hundred breaths or I'll do a box breathing round, which is shorter, which takes about twelve minutes. But you program it for however many seconds you want, but it's a square. Where say you have a program for ten seconds, you inhale for ten seconds, yeah. you hold for ten seconds. You exhale for ten seconds, and the hard part is you hold empty for ten seconds. You do that 10 times around, and I assure you, if you're angry, if you're feeling impulsive, if you're thinking about eating some shit, if you're thinking about calling the wrong girl, if you're thinking about taking a drug, if you're thinking about losing your shit, if you box breathe for seven minutes, that urge is gone and you're clear-headed. Wow. So I'll do that all throughout the day, constantly, especially when I'm directed. And then, and then you'll I'll show you the here. app later. And then, and then you'll come here. Oh, and, I'll hit uh, somebody. And you'll work out. <laughs> I'll hit something. Yeah. So four a.m. At four to four thirty a.m. every morning. What's your What's your nutrition like? Because so, well, your so, workouts in Hollywood are legendary. Yeah. In Hollywood, because uh, I've heard that like people that will be on uh, the the set with you, you'll invite them to come work out, yeah. and yeah. Um, it, it you know usually one one time through, and then so they my, say no. My not basic for me. routine is um, I just I believe in um, getting up really early like i always felt that that gave me an edge so four i don't get up at four so much but um usually about between four thirty and 5 i like to get up and and have time just to myself and that's when i'll, I'll do some breathing and stretching you also said it keeps you away from the late nights right yeah i don't i think going to bed um re- relatively early with a sense of purpose about what i'm going to really focus on the next day is important to me um if i go to bed with you know without any idea of what i want to do unless i'm on a vacation and i know all i want to do the next day is sleep in and get drunk and like 
just fuck off, yeah. which is fine. Like I'm all for that. But you know you're doing that. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. It, so there's no like gap between expectation and actuality. Yeah, and I, I think that like structural ambiguity is like a disaster for people, and and I see it all the time. It's like people just don't know how to manage their shit. They don't know how to organize themselves, and so they're kind of aimlessly moving around from one activity to the next. But I find that, especially when I'm not shooting a film, if I'm shooting a film, everything's so structured. There's, you know, we're shooting from five in the morning and we're going till nine at night. We just do that six days a week. And But when I come home and I have to put myself on, I have to be very strict with, with, with you know, especially with my exercise, with my, my physical wellness, my eating, my nutrition, and my exercise. And you find like, um, working out early so i'll come here work out early and then when i came to realize it was like around 4 30 is a bad time for me in the afternoon like this is a bad time we're talking about what time is it 4 30 yeah, yeah. yeah this is a time when i don't i don't i don't like this time especially when i've been in an office all day working and having to you know manage people and edit and shit by 4 30 i start going crazy so i've arranged i'll come here and I'll box from like 4.30 to 5.30. And I find that just getting that hour away from the office, like that makes all the difference. I can go back and I can go till 10 at night. Yep. And, you know, there's, there has been more trend about, you know, it's becoming more trendy and I think current. And, and as we look at wellness to talk about like, what is it like to sit in an office, you know, a soul crushing office for nine hours a day or however, and then, you know, and expect to be happy and healthy and productive. I tell everyone in my office, go leave. If you want to go surfing, you want to take a walk, you want to just go take a nap. Don't sit in the office all day. Yeah. Um, you know, get out and do something to shock your system and wake up your, your, your body. Has your management style changed where you are now versus, I know I've heard you talk about at least your, your first film, you were more like aristocratic and like demanding. And, and now you seem to take uh, a much more like empathic approach. And I mean, perhaps that's just through an aggregation of experience over time. Yeah. I mean, I'm more, when I, when I did very bad things, which was my first movie, yeah. uh, if I, I really didn't know what I was doing. And suddenly I am given this movie and, you know, Cameron Diaz is in it and Christian Slater and Jeremy Piven. And I think we had like a $5 million budget, which was like mind blowing to me. It was so big. And I had, you know, all this money and all, and everyone's looking at me and I really had no idea. So if you came up to me and said, good morning, Pete, I'd be like, what the fuck does that mean? What's your problem, Paul? <laughs> fuck away from me you'd be like bro i was just saying good morning man <laughs> really i was just saying good morning so it was because I, there was so much pressure i was scared out of my mind i did but because i didn't know what i was doing i was honestly felt like i was scared i was going to be found out um that and, imposter syndrome yeah, that yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs like yes. 90 percent of entrepreneurs yes. say they have it and and i can honestly say now at this point in my career i i'm confident that i know what i'm doing i know how to expect you know i know how to make movies if you subscribe to gladwell's ten thousand hour i probably have seventy thousand hours making movies right i've, I've done the math actually yeah. <laughs> tried to one day figure out malcolm gladwell says ten thousand hours in practice I, well, okay, if I take all the pre-production, all the yeah. post, oh, for that's sure 4,000, 5,000. I think I might have 100,000 hours. <laughs> oh, yeah, so I know how to do it. And so my attitude now is if I'm willing to be much more trusting and look for real collaborative partners, 
But I recognize that 99% of the people I meet are full of shit. And they talk a good game, and they look the part, and they talk the part. But when it really comes down to, can I trust you to close something, to deliver something, to produce it? If you know, because we, now my company's growing, and we're doing all kinds of movies and TV shows and commercials, and we're having to hire all kinds of people that come in and like, yeah, I'm gonna direct this, I'm gonna produce, I'm gonna take care of it, and I've come to realize that a lot of people, very few people will admit that they don't really know how to do something. And very few people, you're, you're starting a, a, you know, a, a lacrosse league and that's incredibly entrepreneurial. And I'm sure you realize how much you have to carry on your own. And if you're gonna really trust someone to go to Boston and close something, you better really trust them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm much quicker, I'm, I'm quick to trust, but I'm much quicker to call someone out if I think they're, for whatever reason, not able to close. Today's episode is brought to you by Harry's. And a question. Did you know that the average guy will spend 3,000 hours of his lifetime shaving? Well, Harry's doesn't want you to waste four months of your life overpaying for bad razors. And many of you know I rock a beard, or at least have been for over a year, but a beard needs shaving too. Around my cheek and neck, keeping myself somewhat groomed with my Lebanese roots. And Harry's backs me. Now, for my student podcast listeners, we have a special offer for you. You can get a special Harry's trial set that comes with everything you need, including weighted ergonomic handles for an easy grip, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade for a close shave, this rich lathering shave gel that will keep you smelling great, and a travel blade cover to help you on the go. If you're like me, that's super meaningful in these hotel bathrooms that I tend to live in week to week. Listeners on my show can redeem this trial set at harrys.com forward slash Rabel. That's go to harrys.com forward slash R-A-B-I-L to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. Do you have um, any like hiring techniques or uh, observances that you look for that can... As I was sitting with, I'll give you, I'll just give a little bit more context. I was sitting with David O'Connor. Uh, you probably, you may know the Doc. Agent? Doc O'Connor? Yeah, Doc. Well. used to play hockey with him. Doc's great. Great guy. So he played lacrosse in college, yeah. and he's actually an investor in, in great the PLL. Great guy. a good man to have in your corner. Thank you. Um, and, and Doc was, uh, w- was saying that, you know, from his time at CAA, then at MSG, it's so hard to hire. It's like baseball, that if you're, if you're batting, uh, 20 to 30%, you're going to be a hall of famer. And so like m- making three good hires out of 10 in a high stakes industry is actually good, but that's living in, in making more mistakes than not. It seems daunting. And Mike and I talk about this all the time. It's like how much effort we're putting into hiring because you have to. So do you have any tips there? Well, I think the best uh, experience I ever had a job interviewing someone, um, was I was making a film, uh, Hancock, and it was a, a Will Smith big big special effect movie, and when you make a movie like that, a, the, a, a lot of the movie gets done afterwards because you have all these visual effects. You know, Will Smith flying through buildings and picking up cars and whales and all that, and it's all computer generated. So you need to have a producer that comes in that can handle all the 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 production of all these visual effects, and it's a very expensive and complicated job. And we had a good guy, who. Who uh, whose wife got sick, so he had to he had to leave the film. So I had to hire a new guy, and I was trying to figure out like how do you really know if 
if a guy is up for the job and if he's really good and you know reputation obviously means a lot but that can be manipulated yeah remember this one guy came in and he, he had a resume and he'd done visual effects but he'd never done a big movie as big as hancock done little smaller films he came in a very confident cocky guy and he told me about you know his thoughts on the movie and i was like look i just have to say with all due respect i'm looking at your resume and i don't it, these are kind of small movies. I don't see anything that makes me really believe that, not, not believe, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not full of confidence that you could handle the scope. He's like, I could 100% handle the scope of this. No problem. I guarantee it. I go, really? You guarantee it? He's very confident. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. I go, you guarantee it? He goes, I 100% guarantee it. I go, uh-huh. How many pull-ups can you do? He looks at me and goes, how many pull-ups? He says he can do 15 pull-ups. He goes, I can do 15. And there's a bunch of people watching this. We're in my office. I said, okay, come here. Right around the corner, I had a pull-up bar. And I go, you knew 15 pull-ups? He, he looked at the pull-up bar, and he was like, you could see him start to, like, freak. I go, you do 15 pull-ups, it's your job. Wow. He goes up to a pull-up bar, puts his hands up. Now there's, like, five people watching this. Does one pull-up, sort of. Goes all the way down, can't get to. Oh. I look at him, I go, dude, you're out. And he slowly walked out of the room, and I was like, that was it. And I called him afterwards, I'm like, it had nothing to do with pull-ups. But it's like, if you're going to say you're going to do something, you better do it. Right. And I find like... 15 pull-ups is a lot. Like, for, I also thought that the was... The right way like, is but a like, lot. I yeah. thought he was an idiot. Like, why not just say... I would have rather he said, I don't do pull-ups. I can do zero. I'd be like, okay, we don't have a conversation. But to say you could do 15 pull-ups and then do one and a half, not even really one, because I never really... I think he jumped a little bit he on the first a, one. A, you, you had him in an emotional state. Yeah. And and so I do... Like, one, I'm if, wow. if I make a higher... And I don't think it's working out. I'm fearless about firing now. It's like that kind of goes back to like I was saying earlier. It's like, dude, this is not going to work out. Let's end it right now and move, and move on. So I think part of hiring well is being able to recognize maybe you didn't hire so well the first or second time. Don't try and make it work. If it's not working, kill it. Yeah. Kill it. Just end it. Write that in there. It's better for everyone. But if... You know, and then obviously when I'm hiring someone, I will check every every reference I can, and I'll always go back to like, is this a person of the word, and are they able to close whatever it is? Are they able to close? Yeah, and I imagine like for with each, with each position you identify certain skill, but uh, I've heard you talk too about how important it is for an entrepreneur or a filmmaker or an athlete. Uh, or a musician uh, to have vision and to be to have a ton of resilience around that vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and the example you used um, was actually in Friday Night Lights, where your the executives came back and wanted you to alter the ending. And I, mm -hmm. I was I was uh, reading this interview, and I remember watching that film and really disliking you for doing that. Uh, to me, as the viewer, because I wanted them to win. Yeah, I was so uh, connected yeah. with the Westlake football team. Um, and anyway, you stuck to your guns and you probably felt a, a, a ton of pushback and had to get through it, but it taught you the lesson of, of sticking to your guns and, the, and going back to that risk of having vision. So vision, um, what, what else uh, the, the, do you see between the assortment of people that, that you connect with, both from a personal level, the, the best actors in the world, the top athletes that come through? I mean, I think 
I think um, work, work ethic is, you, there's got to be a certain certain work ethic, right? There's got to be discipline. And, and um, I don't know anyone, anyone that's able to have a consistent, consistently successful career and have any kind of longevity without a work ethic so yeah. if you're if you're a lazy ass the chances are event you you might get a break you might have a minute you might have a moment but there has to be that's this, table stakes yeah i just believe like without without discipline if i don't if i don't believe someone is disciplined in their life um i'm probably going to stay away from them and i'm not i'm just not going to be able to trust them so i think um discipline is, is a given but um when you're when you're dealing with um, creativity, um, that that's kind of an intangible, you know. That that gets into like um, you can't really work your way into a creative idea. That has to be like there's you've got to know how to find your muse and know how to find something to stimulate you. But that's and and I think being being disciplined can help you be creative. Being disciplined, you know, I think anyone can be creative. They've just got to figure out what what it is they need to look at to uh, to wake up their creativity. You're starting a lacrosse league. There's a incredible amount of creativity in that. So that can be looked at as an artistic um, endeavor. You, it would ne it would never happen without effort, yeah. right? I want to make a movie about the Brotherhood of Navy Seals. Well, okay, that required me to put an incredible amount of effort and discipline into researching and learning and living and traveling with Navy SEALs when I did Lone Survivor so that I could be creatively stimulated. That creativity came from discipline. Like, I don't think creativity is something that just, you know, I know painters that, you know painters. Your, your mom was a painter? My mom, yes, art teacher. People don't realize how much work it is to be a painter. It's, you've got to get up and paint and work and do shit and erase it and throw it out and do it over again. Anything, any, any, endeavor, if, any endeavor requires work, discipline, and effort. And so hmm. for me, it generally will go back to discipline and work ethic. Um, and I, I find that I've met very few people that I, I can't figure out a way to work with that have a really good sense of work ethic and discipline. Did you ever fear that you wouldn't be successful? And did that drive you? Yeah, I mean, I, I know my father was an advertising executive in New York, was like worked for uh, Procter & Gamble and handled oh, wow. like Jif peanut butter and right Tide. Madison and, Ave? Yeah, he was like Mad Men. Yeah. And, uh, but he was a business guy. He was on the business side, okay. but, you know, like three Counts. martini lunches yeah. and yeah. like <laughs> drinks on the train. I mean, these guys what were, time. They were animals. And, you know, he, we, there no, no one had ever done anything creative in my family. And I went to this college in Minnesota and started studying theater and little film classes. And my, my dad thought I'd gone crazy. And, couldn't figure it out and gradually he realized I was going to major in, in theater and, and theater history and he was just perplexed by the whole thing and he was trying to get me to come east after graduation and work for like a Lehman Brothers type company which is now out of business yeah. and everyone went to jail but he wanted me to come back he was like this is crazy you know what are you doing you're, you're, you're... and I told him go to LA and maybe go to film school but I want to get into the film business and he was and in, in, in trying to be be helpful, doing everything he could to sort of sh short circuit that and do, throw anything he could in between me and moving to Los Angeles, because he knew absolutely nothing about it. And finally, um, I was back in New York 
about two weeks before I was going to move to L.A., and he sat me down, and he had gotten me a job. A friend of his worked for a money management firm in New York, Lehman Brothers, and he said, I, son, I've got, I've got you the job. You're in. You're going to be an assistant, assistant, assistant broker. It's done. You have to take this job. Wow. And I remember looking at him and said, Dad, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go to L.A. And he kind of paused, and he teared up. He looked at me and he said, son... I just have to be honest, you're going to end up making them goddamn gay pornos. That's what's going to happen. You're going to end up making gay pornos if you go to Hollywood. And that was the last bit of advice I moved to L.A. with, was I was going to end up making gay pornos. Not just pornos. He <laughs> was real specific on it. And, and that was my dad trying to kind of scare me straight. Yeah. But, you know... And I have nothing against gay pornos or pornos, really, one way or the other. But I, I would be lying if I said I was full of confidence and support yep. um, when I moved out here. Um, I, I was on fire, and I was determined to mm. um, disprove that theory. Um, and like I said, when I did my first film, I was still full of fear. And I used the fear to drive me to... Um, work harder um, and try and figure out how to take control of things that are generally very hard to take control of. Hollywood's a, a strange business. There's no clear roadmap or path to success. If you're a lacrosse player and you score more goals than they score, you win, that's it, you move forward. Hollywood's not like that. Mm. Um, so I used, um, I was scared uh, of failure. Um, I'm not as scared of failure as I am now, which presents a whole nother series of challenges, you know, because when you have fear driving you, okay, that's a great engine. Yeah. Well, when suddenly, okay, I don't have quite that same fear. Um, I'm more comfortable, you know, there's food in my refrigerator. So now I have to figure out new ways of staying motivated mm. and new ways of, of keeping that, that drive and that spirit um, that, that are often more complicated than just straight up, holy shit, I'm going to end up starring in porn films if i'm not careful yeah but i think you're doing that just even with this gym and so you it not not only did launch this gym but you guys started a, a management of of athletes too because you saw there being a lack of democratizing in this space mm -hmm. and there's a lot of athletes being taken advantage of so i i, I would suspect that you're finding that drive now less less around self and more around others yes i mean definitely helping others mentoring others um, building a business, you know, my company is um, is grown, and we've you know started an advertising agency and a commercial production company. We had two Super, uh, Super Bowl spots Those this were year, awesome. and that was that was a really cool feeling, you know, to have two two. We did a, the NFL hundred year, and we yep. did this um, really cool like Verizon first responder program, and Th those were two. And, and you know, it's it's. I'm, I'm sure like anyone would say this across the table from you, like two of my favorite spots from the Super Bowl. Uh, but obviously when you can, when you can match on the, on the NFL 100, some of the top athletes to have played. So you go down memory lane back to when I was watching the NFL when I was 11 and now when I'm 33 and kind of taking that one room and, and providing all that action and that fun and ingenuity. Yeah. But the Verizon first responders uh, was one of the most compelling, uh, you know, it's tough to even call it an ad I've ever seen. Yeah, that was crazy. That was, um, you know, the, Verizon had the idea to try and do something for first responders. And we came up with the idea of finding 
NFL players, or anyone associated with the NFL, but ideally players that had had their lives saved by, by first responders and see if we could tell that story. I thought that was a good idea. And we did several stories that kind of, we made a little film and then we did some stories about players that aired during the playoffs. But then we found uh, Coach Lynn of the San Diego Chargers and found, found out about his story. And like 16 years ago, he was hit by a drunk driver and like 50 feet in the air, everything broken, organs ruptured. I mean, he was, he was done. And these two young cops on bikes found him, just unconscious. Paramedics showed up, and it was this like 20-year-old paramedic girl. It was her first week on, and she did the medicine on him, you know, chest compressions, got a bloodline in him. And her and these cops kept him alive to the hospital. And it was a pretty remarkable story. And we started doing some research, and we found that he'd never met those, those, those first responders. So we went through this whole like kind of charade the whole idea of the spot was bringing all these first responders bringing coach lynn who's a pretty big scary dude i don't know if you've ever met him i i had no idea how he'd react to this he was just honored for uh at the la sports summit for coach of the year he's a great guy and and but like tell him he was just going to tell his story and talk to some first responders and then we're going to ambush him right with those and we had no idea how we'd take it. And we knew how he would respond. And we knew we only had one shot. Yeah. You know, that moment where he, when, when he's talking and the woman puts up her hand and says, Coach, you know, I'm, I'm the girl that was in the, the ambulance that night. And I'm like, we, we had some problems. We were supposed to have four cameras and we only had two. And we had to get it. And I'm like, holy shit, we're going to miss this. And like, you, you know, I'm literally moving the cameraman to get ready for this moment. Yeah. Nobody knows what's going on. It was not really well thought out, which I kind of like because wow. sometimes the best things aren't that well thought out. And that girl said it. And he looked at her and you could feel the heat. And we're in a firehouse in Pasadena. The heat in that room of emotion of everyone in that room. And he just started bursting into tears. And then this other cop's like, so I'm officer can't remember the cop's last name and I, I was the one on the bike that found you and he just coach Lynn just went nuts and that was kind of cool you know and like to have this big company Verizon just basically trust you and say dude can you make this work and you know normally a Super Bowl commercial they spend eight months planning and every second's planned every shot's planned this is like Pete can you get it and so that's the kind of thing that that definitely fired me up and inspired me and that was that was a hell of experience yeah the the research that goes into your work uh you had mentioned lone survivor and fully immersing yourself um would you say that there that 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 was something that you embarked on that may have been a big differentiator for you in your career and and you even did it with friday night lights you spent months in westlake texas with the quarterbacks, and then you spent two months with Navy SEALs in Iraq. When I was in college, um, I was into journalism, and I started, uh, Mm. I was into filmmaking, but I I started writing for the school paper, and I was always really into, um, my cousin is an investigative journalist who wrote Friday Night Lights, Buzz Bissinger, who you should have on your podcast, he's a genius, Uh, and crazy, really crazy. for that intro. Really crazy. (laughs) Um, But but he instilled upon me the value of research, um, and I was a huge documentary film fan growing up. Um, a guy named Werner Herzog was one, one of my favorite um, 
directors, and he did everything from the Titicat Follies, which became the inspiration for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, to a bunch of other docs. And somewhere along the way of filmmaking, I realized that the more I researched the, the environment that I wanted to write about, um, you know, even movies like The Rundown, I went down to Brazil and spent three weeks down there with these tribes and got kidnapped and had all kinds of crazy shit happen to me. But that, that kind of ignited, that research ignited um, a, a passion in me. When I did The Kingdom, I went to Saudi Arabia and spent three weeks with these Saudi police and the FBI working together. And that just kind of, for me, like I've never been a guy to make, I'll, I'll never sit and invent um, a film like Get Out, you know, full respect to Get Out. That's that that exists in his mind, and he comes up with that. That I'm much more factually based. If if I follow you around and study you and observe you, figure out your pattern of life, I can make a movie about you. I get passionate about it, and I found in my career whenever I put the time in. So when I went to Iraq with the SEALs, when I came back, I had such a, a comprehensive understanding of that culture that I was able to make a good movie. Um, if I put the time in, the work is, I'm, almost, I'm always proud of the work. If I don't, you know, I make a movie like Battleship, which is a lot of fun, but about aliens coming in and fighting the Navy, okay, it's probably gonna not be the same experience for me creatively that when I really put the work in and put my blood in and do the research, that that's just for me, my personal style of getting to something that feels real good. I'm certainly the the last person to sit in a room and, and talk about uh, the music or the film business, uh, the movie business is how Doc calls it. Mm -hmm. um, but but certainly uh, pretty versed in technology and have seen um, the shift and the impact that technology had to the music business. Um, you know, starting with Napster, and now we're seeing Spotify, and they're doing things a lot different than Napster. So not putting that in their bucket, but what what that has done to the music business. And I was listening to a podcast with uh, uh, Mark Andreessen and I think it's Brian Koppelman. And they were talking about how oddly, like the anticipation from, from venture was that it would do the same to the film business. Uh, but it, it actually hasn't because of uh, a lot of the, the shift to television or Netflix or Amazon. And what we've actually seen is the end user has benefited from it because there's incredible content out there. But my question to you is, it, it, it certainly has changed the movie business and that fewer blockbusters are being put out. And for sports people like us, I mean, there's that, that's changed significantly because sports films don't do as well overseas and the film business has now become an overseas business. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's when I first moved to L.A., there were four networks, right? ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox was starting. TV was so big and powerful. I was on a show called Chicago Hope. I was acting on it. Yeah. We were on Thursday nights at 10 o'clock opposite ER, both medical shows. ER beat us every single Thursday. We would come in second with 38 million viewers. Wow. 38 That's million. huge. The power of television then was so huge. Then there were seven movie studios. Those movie studios, each studio was putting out 25 movies a year. Yep. That was the game. You knew what it was, and you stepped in line. There were producers that had connections to those. You played the game to get to those producers. You either got your shit made or you didn't. It is now absolute chaos, right? So that if you fast forward, this was 1990. You fast forward to 2019, 
the platform disruption is so severe and so ongoing um, that it's mind-blowing and it's can be very very disorienting and confusing and you look at yes there's more options but as you we were talking earlier about you're trying you're going to try and make noise and penetrate um with uh your lacrosse league and there's just so many competitive yep. uh um sources of content that you've got to compete with and including you know, some nine-year-old kid dancing uh, to hip-hop songs on YouTube. That right. I might want to watch that over your lacrosse game. Right. And there's that's just the way it goes, right? And so I feel like, and what I say to anyone that asks, and what I say to myself now, is you more than ever have to really know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and you better do it from real, real passion if you want to have a chance at, at penetrating. If, because there's just so much content. The, bear of, the, the barriers of entry are, are invisible now. Anybody can put anything out anywhere, and there's parody in it, you know? Yeah. The biggest star in the 100th anniversary football thing, we had everyone from Jim Brown to Odell Beckham Jr. Squam Barkley was this kid ninja who's um, the the best Fortnite player in the world, and like the NFL insisted upon having Ninja there because Ninja was a bigger star than the '72 Miami Dolphins, than Odell wow. Beckham Jr. and these football players were going crazy for him, and the fact that this kid who does really nothing but play a video game and kids watch him play the video game and that's mainstream entertainment he's making 15 million a year doing that i'm like great but P and, and by the way ninja's a great dude and he really charismatic and i've now watched him play his video game and i kind of get why it's watched I've, i'll watch him a little bit yeah don't tell my son that <laughs> but, but, i saw a photo of you two at the super bowl watching the yeah. game yeah but he was the biggest star at the super bowl ninja Wild. was the biggest star in that building i mean like people were going crazy for him and my whole thing is more than ever now if you want to cut through the noise whether it's a feature whether it's a commercial whether it's a documentary you better you know the reason that that um free solo worked so well for me was because jimmy chin had that in his blood there's no like oh, maybe i'll do a movie about climbing i don't really know much about climbing jimmy chin had that movie in his blood and you saw it on the screen wow. and we're the the good news is there's more there's more content platforms than there've ever been mind blowing amount absurd amount infinite amount. Yep. The bad news is if you want to if something's going to work, you're going to have to be really really good because you're going to get one shot. You're going to get seven minutes of my attention, and if you don't get me, I'm going to go look for something else. Yep. So if your lacrosse league doesn't figure out a way of hooking me, if my fighters don't figure out a way of knocking people out with real style and real flair and putting on a show and being real interesting outside of the ring, nobody's going to care. Yeah. And you're going to see guys that are world champions that are at the top of their game, that have multiple belts as boxers who make, they're lucky to make $300,000 when they should be making $30 million, but they can't break through. Yeah, we started with you reflecting on your time watching Muhammad Ali uh, and, and I was talking to, I was lucky to, to have an opportunity to spend some time with Peter Guber and we were talking about the, the PLL and he says he catches flack in sports now for calling sports show business. 
and there's this interesting juxtaposition, and we see it play out in the NFL and the NHL and Major League Baseball more, and Adam Silver does a great job, has done a great job in the NBA of empowering his athletes, but there, we grew up in this culture in sports uh, to be very like robotic in the press conferences and to, you know, give all of the credit to team. And and those are like really strong characteristics and like value propositions if you're Bill Belichick and you're coaching the Patriots and you're going to the Super Bowl so often. Uh, but if you're trying to like make some economics in sports in a competitive environment, it's got to be entertaining. Sure. You need guys talking sure. shit and, and you need guys dancing after touchdowns. That's right. And for you, you're, you're going to start a new league and these guys wear helmets, right? So nobody knows what they look like. A lot of really cool looking yep. dudes, probably really good looking dudes that girls would love and could be rock stars, kind of like you. You you could be a rock star, <laughs> handsome rascal. He's a good looking dude. Should be a rock star. I have no pipes. But, but, but well, but you got to... <laughs> A metaphorical rock star, but you've got you've got to wear the helmet, and you're in a sport yeah. that's like kind of off the beaten path. So it's like, how do you make? You're going to have to figure out a way of creating some some stars, you know? Yeah. And like like look at boxers. I mean, these guys are naked standing in the ring. Soccer players, basketball soccer, players, same and, thing. I mean, soccer players have a great advantage because they're great looking guys. They're physically, um, you know, gifted, and they're playing an extraordinary populated popular sport, so they can boost these social media presences and turn themselves into giant brands like Ronaldo and Messi and a bunch of other guys I don't really know because I don't follow soccer, but people show them to me and they've got 130 Case million. Case in point there. You don't care much for soccer, well, that, but you know they're stars. But I, I, there's enough people that do care yeah. that keep those, and those numbers are huge. And so it's just like the challenge of life in show business, and I agree with Peter Gruber, it is show business. Sports is show business, movies are show business, music is all show business now. Yeah. Jeff Bezos is in the business of show business in many ways. Yeah. Elon Musk is in the business of show business. Yeah. More than ever now, I think anyone that wants to create content better know what they're doing. They better have real, real vision, real purpose. They better have done their homework. They better have something to say and really work hard to say it well and loud or it's disposable because everything is disposable now. The the last question that I have for you, and I appreciate you taking all this time, Pete. This has been amazing mm -hmm. for me. Um, you referenced this 10% rule. Is that applicable to sports only? Or do you look at 10% or more in in everything else you do? And where did that – Where did, I've never heard the 10%. So, oh, there's a book Because it's very acute versus a, saying, like, surround a, yourself with people who are smarter than you. There's a book called Flow uh, written by this – Stephen Kotler? No, it's not that book. Um, it's not Stephen Kotler. Before Stephen Kotler, who spoke at our series, there's another book. I'll get it for you. Um, written by a guy that's got, like – 35 syllables in his last name. He's a Russian um, psychiatrist, or a German psychiatrist. I think I might have a copy here. And I read it, and he talked about 10%, and that as a rule, if if you, and, and I, I think it can apply to, um, he talked about the flow state, and Stephen Kotler talks about the flow state too, and I, I believe in that. I really do believe in the flow state. You can be an eye surgeon operating on, you know, an infant's eyes trying to restore vision. You can be um, um, a Zamboni driver uh, at a hockey rink. You can be a lacrosse player. You can be a lacrosse coach. Actually, I mean, it, it's harder for coaches. Any active um, 
activity that you participate in. If if it's harder if you're watching it or coaching it because you don't have the control. Probably like if, a director too, a little bit. Certainly, as a director, I go into flow states directing all the time, where you're operating in an environment where if it's if it's ten percent out of your comfort level, you're gonna struggle. You're gonna. You're, you, you could get discouraged, you could fail, you could get knocked down in a way that makes it hard to get. If it's 10% below, you're probably going to be not entirely engaged because it's going to be too easy. But if you're playing at a level with in a world that's pushing you 10% out of your comfort level, you're going you're gonna to get better. You're going to be able to, you can, anyone can dig in and be 10% better. Getting much above that, maybe, maybe not. But I'm sure... When you're playing lacrosse, if you're playing a bunch of, against a bunch of kids that are just 30% less than you, it's not that much fun. It's mm -hmm. not that much of a challenge. It's not a growth experience for you. Yeah. you. You, unfortunately, probably never experienced playing with someone 20% better than All you because not, well, okay. <laughs> but in your day, everyone yeah. said you were the best, okay? So if you're the best, the challenge is, you know, hopefully there's guys that can check, can, can, can keep up with you. But if not, you've got to find those people and make sure you're putting yourself in an environment where the task you're engaged in is putting you at about 10% of your comfort level. Yep. And that's where you can find the flow state. That's where you can find the sublime. That's where you can be Muhammad Ali or Michael Jordan or Steph Curry. But so I do believe in the 10% rule. Amazing. Thank you again to Peter Berg and his team for making this all possible and bringing us to Churchill Boxing. You can continue the conversation with me on Twitter. I'm at Paul Rabel. Let me know what you thought of the show and our commentary. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one -on -one conversation with the greatest football player of all time. That was last week. That's Jim Brown. As well as the greatest football coach of all time, if you want to dig back into our archives, the first episode ever a couple of years ago with Bill Belichick. These and every episode of Suiting Up Podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Shout out to today's show sponsor, Harry's, and go to harrys.com forward slash Rabel to access their trial kit and get started. And finally, consider giving me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way in helping us continue to build the community of great supporters of not only good, healthy conversation, but in a way, lacrosse and the growth of the game and all of our respective games. Talk to you next week. Bye.